Kia ora Okay, so most of you will have already been well aware that the country has been plunged back into lockdown four. Rachel Thompson is a rural GP working in her east coast rohe of Tefano a Apanui. From her Takaha practice, she posted a six-minute message on the Rohe Facebook page on August the 17th, the day the nation was plunged into level four lockdown. We are fully staffed and we're here to make sure that all your ne- normal medical needs are met. Please reach out Fano if you need things like firewood and kai. Um, there's plenty in our community, we just have to work together. Um, for now, Think about who's in your bubble. Think about who's around that might be vulnerable. Reach out to them. Okay. Kia ora whanau. If the Māori vaccination rate was a competition, this rohe would be winning it by far, with more than 80% double vaxxed. And if they can do it, why can't others? I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, we look at two Māori communities in the same DHB, Bay of Plenty, with two very different vaccination stories. You can't escape the, the starkness of, of the stats. Jamie Tahana is a Māori news journalist for RNZ. It's closing, but Māori are about 20% behind on where the European population in New Zealand are in terms of vaccination programmes. This has been warned about by Māori health providers and there you know, are a multitude of reasons behind it, but... Yeah, where we're at is not looking promising for Fano Māori because, you know, as the Delta outbreak spreads further, we have, you know, more than half of each day's cases are Māori people and we make up 16% of the population. So it is fast becoming a, you know, outbreak among Māori and vaccination rates are far behind. So the, these two facts laid side by side is very worrying of, of where we're at right now. When people try to explain what it is, a lot of there's a lot of talk about colonialism and mistrust of the government. But what are you hearing? When you talk to people, what are they telling you? There are a multitude of reasons and it varies, you know, provider by provider, whānau by whānau, town by town sort of thing. I mean, we, we have a rollout that's district health board by district health board and some we are seeing in the maps have better relations with their Māori communities than others, but you know th- there is the hesitancy and a whole class of people who are sceptical of the state. There's also more practical aspects like lack of access or difficulty of access for Fano Māori. You know, your kawaros, your muruparas, your East Capes are isolated, and I've got Fano in Rotoiti, for example, and the closest centre is in. Rotorua, a half hour drive away in Northland. It's difficult if you're in Mahokianga and got to get a ferry as well. Loggers and forests, or you know, big households of shift workers who only have one car between them. So, and there's, you know, the government's putting a lot of weight on this one that Māori are a younger population. It is a factor, but most providers are saying it's not the main issue. And there's also the very structures and communications of it not being set up for Māori. And Māori memory and history is also very much at the present too. There's also, you know, the multitude of reasons the health system is failing Māori in terms of structure, in terms of 
systemic racism in terms of its setup. You know, the Waitangi Tribunal just last week saying that the government has underfunded Māori health providers for decades and that progress to addressing that is miles off. Let's look at how Te Whānau Nui has reached the 80% second dose rate compared with Kawaro's 50%. Here's Dr Thompson talking to RNZ's Matai O'Connor. I guess that it stems back to um, the first outbreak last year um, when we all felt incredibly vulnerable and were um, reflecting on how many of our people died during the 1918 flu epidemic don't have to go far around here to see Urupa filled with our people from that time. And so we all became very protective of our own and we that's when we put up things like the community safe zones and implemented lots of um, initiatives to keep our people safe during that lockdown. So when the vaccine became available, it seemed really logical that we needed to get that as our next layer of protection for our people. So around April, we became aware that there was vaccine available. And so we decided to be a bit proactive. And at that point, we started getting our nurses to go up to some of the borders where they were vaccinating to get a handle on the systems and how it works. And yeah, started the process of becoming certified to give the vaccinations. There's been a bit of chatter on Twitter, etc., that a doctor, I'm assuming that doctor might be you, had to fight to be able to administer the vaccines. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't say it was a fight and it was a team effort. It mm. was more that there was a lot of um, barriers in place and they were partly to do with um, the requirements to store the vaccine. It was tricky to get through the training program, there was limited numbers when you needed to get your nurses and vaccinators through the training program. So it wasn't in the, the thinking at the time that areas like ours could do it. Therefore, we had to prove that we could. They also didn't really have a plan at that stage for small rural, rural areas like ours where people haven't got access to the larger centres there was some suggestion that they might bus people from the coast up to Whakatane, which just really wouldn't work for our people. So we just had to jump through the hoops. If we had had more Māori providers, Māori medical teams on board earlier, we could have got these um, results in other places as well. So they jumped through all the hoops, but that wasn't the end of it. Once the vaccines arrived, they only had two or three days to use them before they expired. And if you thought Super Saturday was impressive, just listen to the astounding number of volunteers and professionals needed for the rollout in this tiny remote community. We had the local St John's volunteers. We had the local social services, Te Runaungo we had some DHB nurses that initially helped us um, to get underway. We also had um, hapu reps who were volunteering to help. So we had all the list of people and their names. Initially, we picked 30 people. We chose those 30 people as a mixture, um, two people from each of our hapu and a couple of other people within the community to have their first vaccines on that day. And that really helped because it meant that those people from each of the hapu went back to their own and could tell them about what was going on. Uh, we had one of our local young guns videoing 
that and putting it up on the local pages, doing some photo shoots with some of the kaumatua and their reasons for why they were being vaccinated. So we fed all that out into the community. Then we um, got strategic and chose certain marae that were keen to have us. So we set up, usually in the whareke, we phoned everyone, they were booked in, they turned up on the day and we vaccinated them. Sounds simpler than it actually is because the process of, of getting everybody there and drawing things up is complicated because we didn't have any extra staff. It was just our regular clinic staff. So this is all on top of business as usual. Yeah. So, yeah, we went to various marae along the coast and got the bulk of people's first vaccines done. And then we went back and did the second doses for most of those people three to four weeks later. Mm. Yeah, so we also had the support of Te Runango Te Whanau that helped to koha to the marae for kai and got some amazing feed. Yeah, I think the manakitanga at the marae was really significant. Yeah. And part of part of our issue was no one wanted to go home. So <laughs> we ran out of space in the zones for monitoring because people were just having a good catch-up at we did all sorts of other things too. Like we, um, the nurses would go out onto farms and vaccinate people out there. They would um, at Tangihana and stuff. We turned up at the side of the Tangihana and particularly caught up with people who were needing second vaccines. I think that it's just really important that Māori are not seen as the problem here. It's a system that from the very beginning didn't concentrate its efforts to ensure that Māori were catered to. Even the example is the rollout of age groups. Uh, they That was set at 65. Uh, there's less Māori in that age group and that the really should have been set at an, a lower level for Māori due to the rates of comorbidity and the effect we know that COVID will have um, on the Māori population. So I think it's really important that we realise that it's been a lack of access to the vaccine rather than any sort of issue with the population itself. So could that plan be replicated in low-vax communities like Kaurau? Well, Rachel Thompson says... You can't take a model from one community and plonk it into another. Mm-hmm. Each community works so differently that we just know our community well and so we could figure out what would work for us. Let's get Morgan Godfrey's take. He's a senior lecturer at Otago University and he's part of the Kaurau Hapu Te Patipoto. He grew up in the town and his family still lives there. It's very interesting when you look at the differences in micro, I think. Uh, in Te Whanua Apanui, most of the Māori in that rohe are Te Whanua Apanui. So most of the Māori there identify as members of the local iwi, whereas in Kaurau, the iwi dynamics are much different because most Māori who live in Kaurau are actually from Tūhoi which is not the local iwi in Kawido. So the local iwi in Kawido is uh, Tuwharitoki, Kawido and Ngātiawa. So you get to a problem there where the iwi leaders who are helping to run the vaccination rollout in Kawido are not actually connected to the majority of Māori who live there. Uh, so that's where you get to not necessarily a breakdown, perhaps, but perhaps uh, another one of the barriers of the vaccination rollout uh, where iwi providers can certainly roll out the vaccine to their own iwi members, but there's something of a challenge when they start to roll out uh, the vaccine to wider Māori groups. Can you describe to me what it was like growing up in Kawaro? 
Kawada is a very strange place. In some ways, it feels, I suppose, haunted is the right word because you're surrounded by uh, all these monuments to um, a prosperous past. So uh, you're surrounded by industrial sites and mills. Uh, you're surrounded by mansions from the 1960s in that brief period of prosperity. Uh, and yet most of it's uninhabited. So you have abandoned mills, you have abandoned industrial sites. But at the same time, it's also a very young town. It was only built in the 1950s. So it also has quite a strange youthful energy. You wrote a really interesting piece in The Guardian explaining how the history of this town explains the poor vaccination rate. I think there are two issues. One issue is uh, right there on the surface and that it's very hard to access uh, vaccines. So the vaccination centre in town is only open a certain number of days for a certain amount of time. But then there's also another issue which is just below the surface and is a lot harder to spot unless you have perhaps grown up there or unless you have an experience of some kind in Kawedo. And that's generations of distrust um, of the government and of authorities as well. Um, so you'll see it in very obvious ways in that two of the biggest uh, institutions in town are the police station and the winds office, uh, which gives you a sense of what the government's presence in the town is. It's not, it's not a nice presence, it's a coercive presence. Uh, when you have police, the probation office and winds being the biggest government presence in town, uh, you know that something's gone wrong in the relationship between the people in Kawedo and the government. Uh, so that gets to, I think, gets to the issue which is underneath the surface, which is just people don't have good experiences with the government. You're probably more likely to interact with an Oranga Tamariki social worker, uh, an MSD case manager, a police constable or a probation officer than you are to actually interact with um, a DHB nurse or a DHB doctor, for example. So that experience of at the very sharp end, I guess, of the Crown Māori or the Crown uh, working class even relationship uh, bleeds into everything else. So it bleeds into the relationship people have with nurses and doctors and with the DHB. So I think when you get a sense of that relationship, you can begin to understand the very valid reasons people have, not necessarily to distrust the government, but at least to be a little bit cautious about them. Nō reira ki te iwi Māori, kei runga te mate urutā i te mahau o tō whare. Kaua e tukuna kia uru mai, ko te ārai motuhake, ko te kano ārai mate. So I say to the Māori people, COVID-19 is on the doorstep of your houses. Do not let it enter, and the best course of protection still remains for us to vaccinate our people. That's Associate Minister for Health Penny Henare standing on the podium at the daily COVID press conference. A few days later, the government announced a $120 million fund to speed up Māori vaccination rates. Here's Jamie Tahana again. It'll be split in half, so $60 million to boost Māori vaccination rates to increase that rollout. That, that'll help with the resourcing for you know, mobile camper vans for, for one provider was telling me, or create clinics in various places, or to go door-to-door. The other $60 million is to help Māori communities prepare for the new traffic light system, be that to help, you know, as COVID, as we're being warned, inevitably spreads 
to help Māori communities prepare for, say, self-isolation or to cope with cases in communities. Is that going to change things in Kawarau? I think it will make a big difference to vaccination rates because it will allow a lot of providers to start going door to door, which is something they've been asking for uh, for a few months now, is the ability to uh, drive to people in isolated communities, so whether that's on the East Coast or whether that's deep in Tuhoi country, for example, uh, or to knock door to door in urban areas or in towns and cities uh, to get to people who um, perhaps are hesitant, to get to them first to have a conversation about uh, what this is uh, and what's happening, because it's hard to imagine, um, you know, for people who listen to the detail or who listen to RNZ, it's hard to imagine people who don't engage with any news at all, um, who don't watch the 6pm news on television, who don't listen to morning report, uh, who don't even read stuff in uh, the nzherald.co.nz during the day. It's hard to imagine that there's a big group, perhaps 10% of the country, uh, who have absolutely no exposure to that. So the virus is only a background thing to them. Uh, it's not in their face or it's not part of their day-to-day lives. You know, Facebook is key and people have told me that with the structure of the rollout with Māori far behind on it, that's allowed months of, you know, festering among, you know, anti-vax pages and stuff. The anti-vaxxers have had months-long head start in whānau, which now the strategy is changing a bit. Providers find themselves on the back foot in relation to this messaging. Uh, So part of going door-to-door is actually to tell people um, this is the threat that we're facing and this is the solution that we have to it, the vaccine. I think that's what people find hard to understand. Surely in a town like that, people are exposed to the messages and the conversations. I think one of the difficult things about a town like Kawiro is that it's quite self-contained. Um, I grew up with people who had never been further than Rotorua as children. Uh, and there are still people I know as adults who haven't been further than Auckland before. There's this large segment of the community that's closed. Um, and there are things which are happening, of course, scanning in, masking up in public places, uh, which you have to do so you know that there's, the virus is somewhere in the background. But it's still not a present thing for a lot of people, I think, absent knowing what else is happening in the rest of the country and actually the rest of the world. I think without that experience, it's very difficult to get a handle on just how significant this thing is. And that's compounded, it, I think, by living in New Zealand where for the last 18 months uh, things have been relatively easy and we could afford to be relatively complacent compared to the rest of the world. People who can be trusted, are they now the ones who are involved in this vaccination rollout? By and large, yes. I think what the Ministry of Health finds hard to understand is that community leaders in small towns like Kawedo or Murapara are often not the leaders that you would think. So it would be very easy to go into a town like that and um, pick out the local iwi leaders and say, these are the people who we need to talk to. But often it's not necessarily those iwi leaders who are going to be the most effective to reach out to people who are vaccine hesitant or people who don't know what's going on around the rest of the country. Often it might even be, you know, the young bloke on the street who drops off, you know, a bit of their home kill or they drop off some of their latest catch to the old people on the street who will be uh, the most trusted person or people on that street or in 
that community. Uh, the Ministry of Health, of course, has no scope on that, though. So they don't know who those people are. So we encounter a problem where if you're not present in that community, you're actually going to have no idea about who will be the most effective to have these hard conversations with people. I mean, it seems kind of cliche, but if you were to you know, catch Tahawai, say, take it around to one of the families on your street and talk about the vaccine, that's actually going to be really, really effective. Um, it sounds kind of silly, uh, but that's how these communities work. But of course, if you're the government and the Ministry of Health, um, it's very difficult to, one, resource those people. I mean, there's probably a practical barrier that can't be overcome there. But two, to actually know that that's how these communities yeah. work in the first place. What would you like to see happen in Kawarau? I think what needs to happen in Kawarau and also places like Kawarau, whether that's uh, Murupara or Galatea or Portiki uh, or other places on the East Coast, is for the Ministry of Health or for DHBs rather to go into the community, to bring together the community leaders, the very obvious community leaders like the Mayor, the Head of the Māori Health Providers. Uh, and instead of stipulating in contracts uh, what the DHB can do, instead to ask what does the community need? So what kind of vaccination rollout do you need to run to actually reach people? Um, so the DHBs would be more than willing, of course, to fund uh, vaccination rollouts in pharmacies and um, wherever else, but perhaps less keen to roll it out in a different fashion. So whether that's knocking door to door, whether that's a vaccine bus. How confident do you feel that Kawaro will reach the 90%? Ooh, I think Kawaro will get close to the 90% figure, but I do doubt that they'll pass it because there are all kinds of, all kinds of things which are magnified in Kawaro. So we already know that Māori lag behind in the vaccine rollout. So in Kawaro, that's going to be magnified even further because a majority of the population are Māori. Uh, we also know that if you're poor, you're less likely to get the vaccine. And of course, Kawiro has one of the lowest median incomes in the country. So again, um, the inequities are magnified a second time. And then of course, it functions in access as well. And that Kawiro has comparatively less access to the vaccine, say, than uh, neighbouring Tauranga or neighbouring Rotorua. So I think that those three issues compounded probably make hitting 90% unlikely. Uh, but I certainly think Kawaro will get close. It's certainly starting to rocket up the numbers now. If we do find that it rips through Māori communities with quite devastating effects, well, then a fear is that we might be remembering it in 100 years the same whānau do when they go to Anuta and see mass graves from, from 1918 and the like. I mean, heaven forbid that doesn't happen. Māori vaccination rates are improving, so fingers crossed it doesn't. That's hard to see how this will be written positively in the history books. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. Thanks to Morgan Godfrey, Jamie Tahana and RNZ's Matai O'Connor for his interview with Rachel Thompson. Ka kite.